It was in 1997, back in the Philippines, uh, where I'm from, that I got a hold of this book written by a former missionary in India by the name of Wesley Duell. The title is Revival Fire. And there's a chapter in that book that talks about the revival that took place here in Wilmore in 1970. Well, you know what? I was just fascinated by that chapter. And being a third-generation Methodist from the Philippines and having not much of an option for uh, a spirit-filled theological education, I was yearning to come here at Asbury. But God had other plans, and so I ended up coming to, to another seminary when I came to the U.S. But you know what? Fast forward today, I feel immensely blessed to be standing in front of you as a new member of the Asbury Seminary community. And actually, right now, I'm, I'm praising God quietly as I've been worshiping with you since this morning, and, and I'm standing here right in front of you. Friends, in the church of Ephesus, we see a biblical example of a church that had begun well. Actually, it started when Paul visited Ephesus, as found in Acts chapter 19. And here, he found 12 believers who had been only baptized with a baptism given to them by John the Baptist. But not the baptism of Jesus. So Paul quickly resolved this situation by baptizing them in the name of Jesus. And in verse 6, Luke says, When Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So essentially, what they experienced was the baptism of Jesus. Remember in, in Matthew 3, verse 11, well, John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water for repentance. But there's one who will come after me who's more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Amen? And who is he referring to? Well, Jesus. So they experienced what we would call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I like it because, you know, I'm reminded of Henry Clay Morrison's book, The Baptism with the Holy Ghost. He said, baptism with the Holy Ghost. Because he wants to emphasize that Jesus is the one who baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. Amen? That when he baptizes us, Holy Spirit comes. So Paul stayed there in Ephesus for three months. He spoke in the synagogues about the kingdom of God, but was later rejected. And so he gathered the early believers in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And for two years, he did that. So aside from teaching, according to Acts 19, verse 11, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that when the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick, their diseases left them. And the evil spirits came out of them. So in other words, his work was accompanied with signs and wonders. That's why eventually, this led to a massive awakening there at Ephesus. For many, both Jews and Greeks were seized with great, with great fear, and many turned to Jesus. 
There was mass confession. They openly confessed their sins, and many who had practiced sorcery or witchcraft brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And if we'll estimate the, the, the amount of economic loss for these people, it counted about 137 years worth of wages. That was, that was how much they gave up for Jesus. So as you can see, there was this great awakening that took place in Ephesus. And according to verse 20, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Friends, a strong church in Ephesus was born. It was a church forged in the fire of God's love. And, in this, church and this church became well known. And that's why of all the seven churches of Asia, the Lord, that the Lord addressed in Revelation chapter 2 to 3, the church of Ephesus had the most impressive history. And Jesus' words to them captures that in verse 2 to 3 when he said, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. I also know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name and that you have not grown weary. So in other words, the Lord knew their works. The Lord knew their toil. The Lord knew their endurance. They were a church that did not tolerate evildoers. They rejected injustice. Amen? Also, they, they tested those who pretended to be apostles. Well, they were clearly orthodox in their understanding of the faith. And above all, in the midst of intense persecution, they persevered in the faith and have not grown weary. And as if to cap their impressive track record, the Lord also told them in verse 6, Yet this to your credit, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Well, who were the Nicolaitans anyway? Well, these were Christians who thought that it's okay to indulge in sin because they believed that they were no longer subject to moral law and that they were free to do whatever they pleased. But you know what? The Ephesians recognized this heresy of the Nicolaitans and rejected their teachings. So the Ephesians were not only Orthodox, they were also a holiness church. Amen? Amen. They were a holiness church. They knew the importance of holiness. As you can see, it seems that the church of Ephesus checks all the correct boxes of what makes for a genu genuine church of Jesus. And if I was going to join a church, well, that sounds like a church that I want to be a part of. Wouldn't you? But you know what? In verse 4 of Revelation chapter 2, Jesus said, but. He said, but. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Jesus says, but I have this against you. You had this love, and now it's gone. It's not, now it's gone. So what was this love anyway? 
Well, friends, one thing seems to be certain here. This love refers to the fervent passion of the church of Ephesus that they had for Jesus. This is what characterized this church in its, earliest, in its earlier days, right after the twelve were baptized in the Holy Spirit or with the Holy Spirit through Paul. There was no holding them back. There was no mountain too high for them. Why? Because they had this deep affection for the Lord. They worked hard. They persevered. They tested false apostles and rejected false teachings. Not because they had to, but simply because they were in love with Jesus. They were in love with Jesus. Perhaps you're wondering, friends, how is it that they were able to, to fall in love with Jesus with such great passion? Well, here's the answer. It's because of Holy Spirit. Amen? It's because of Holy Spirit. Remember, this church started through a baptism of the Holy Spirit when Paul prayed for them, when he prayed for the twelve and what's the connection between an experience of Holy Spirit and falling in love with Jesus anyway? Well, listen to this. For when the Holy Spirit comes, He will point us to Jesus. Amen? Because Jesus said in John 15, 26, He said, When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who comes from the Father, He will testify on my behalf. Amen? So, Holy Spirit points us to Jesus. And so, that's why I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 to 18, when Paul says, when we turn to Holy Spirit, what happens? Holy Spirit takes off the veil. He takes off the veil. And then we begin to behold the glory of Jesus. We begin to behold His glory. He said as if we're looking, His image is reflected in this mirror. You know, during that time, mirrors are not 4K yet. They're not high depth. <laughs> you know, they're 480p, I guess. <laughs> and so you have to look intently in that mirror. So that means, Jesus' image is reflected in that mirror, and you have to look intently. In other words, you have to gaze at Jesus. You don't just glance at Him. And that's the problem. We're glancing. We're not gazing. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, He will point us to Jesus. And when He points us to Jesus, we will just fall in love with Him. You will adore Him. You will learn about his life. You will learn about his suffering on the cross and his resurrection. And most of all, you will learn about his love for you. And that you will be drawn, drawn closer and closer to him. Friends, perhaps you're wondering why you see other people who are just so in love with Jesus. And you look at yourself and you see that you're not like them that you don't have this ardent passion for Jesus? And the answer to, to that is this. It means that you haven't been really living the Spirit-filled life. 
Because if you do, it would be far from impossible. And I guarantee it. It would be far from, far from impossible not to be fixated on Jesus. You will just fall in love with him. Yes, it is, it's true. The church of Ephesus excelled in hard work. It excelled in perseverance. It excelled in orthodoxy. It excelled in holiness doctrine. But here's the thing. It did not excel in the most excellent way. It did not excel in the gift of love. Love for the Lord. For that love for the Lord will enable them to love each other and to love other people and to love those who are lost. The church at Ephesus had become a very, very cold place. And that flame on that one lampstand, remember, Revelation talk about the seven lampstands, meaning the, uh, the seven churches. And Ephesus is one of those lampstands. That flame on that one lampstand, which is Ephesus, was barely flickering. And the worst, the worst part was, they didn't know. They were clueless. They were blind to this. And so that's why the Lord had to remind them. In verse 5, he said, Remember then from what you have fallen. Let me repeat that. Remember, remember then from what you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In other words, you need to remember how far you have fallen from where you were at first. You need to compare where you are now to where you were before. So today, friends, I challenge you to remember to reference that time when you first gave your life to Jesus. You reference that time when you first said, said yes to Him and that you would follow Him. You know, I even dare say, there's a lot of temptation here in seminary. Why? What, 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 what's one of those temptations? It is the temptation to forget. The temptation to forget. You get, you get lost in the books. You get lost in learning. But then, missing the point why you said you would come here in the first place. And Jesus, you know what? Follow that up by saying, repent and do the things you did at first. See that? We need to repent from our sins. In other words, stop doing what you're doing. Amen? For example, if you're doing something that is harmful to you or other people, you stop doing it. But it doesn't end there. We also need to start being proactive. You need to start doing something. For Jesus said, do the works you did at first. So friends, my prayer is that you would all, or we would all return back to that same feeling of awe and excitement when we first came to Jesus. We need to set our hearts ablaze for Him. 
for Jesus gave the Ephesians, or the Ephesians a warning. He said he would remove the lampstand from its place in heaven if they did not repent. In other words, the church would not bear fruits but be removed. The oil of the Spirit would stop flowing. The lights would go out and the lampstand would be removed from its place. Church, friends, seminarians, fellow faculty, I think we fully understand that as a seminary in the Wesleyan and holiness tradition, that one of our mission is to help the church fulfill its destiny to be the bride of Jesus. Amen? Well, this is so ingrained in our identity. For when Jesus returns, he will come for the church, and the church will be like a bride. Pure and spotless as portrayed in Revelation chapter 19. And this is why we take seriously Paul's prayer in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, which is one of my favorite texts on entire sanctification. You know, John Wesley even quotes this text. It says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So the church will be pure. The church will be spotless when the groom comes. But here's the thing. Have you ever seen a bride that is, that is no longer in love with the groom? Well, I remember on my wedding day, and that's the cue for the piano player, by the way. <laughs> I remember on my wedding day, you know, my wife, she entered the church, and, and I tell you, she was the most beautiful woman in that room that day. Of course, she's still beautiful today. <laughs> Just in case she's watching online. Well, you know what? As we meet face to face there at the altar in front, I look at our eyes and there was a sparkle in our eyes and I see myself in her eyes. See, I saw how deep is her love for me even as I love her deeply. Friends, that is our prayer. It's that when you know, as an institution, as very theological seminary, as we prepare the church to be this spotless, beautiful bride, is that we will never lose our sight for our love for Jesus. Amen? Because it's what's all about. It's to be in love with Him. To be in love with Him. And in the same way, when Christ returns, we can be no longer be in, in love with Him. It's not enough that you have the right doctrine. It's not enough that we have the right information about Jesus. And I know we have plenty of that here in this community. But you know what? Faith is not just cognitive. It also need, needs to be effective. Can we say effective? It has to involve your heart. 
And that's why John Wesley explained saving faith, justification by faith, by citing Romans 10 verse 9. And it reads, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart. He didn't say believe in your mind. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Amen? For faith involves our hearts. It involves our passion. For when the church loses her passion for the second person of the triune God, there is lamentation in heaven. Even if the church is doing well on mission, even if it's doing well on evangelism, it is already on the road to death. If she had lost her holy affection. So today, church, I would just like to leave you these words from Mark Stevie, who's a former Anglican priest, in an essay he wrote on revival. Where he said, Revival is a divinely initiated process in which a dying church is revitalized through the power of the Holy Spirit, leading to a new love affair with Jesus Christ, which in turn transforms the community, it transforms the region, and even nation in which that church is situated. So that's why we need Holy Spirit Church. For when we turn to the Holy Spirit, He will remove that veil and He will point us to Jesus.